from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. We've got a terrific discussion coming up, talking all about where is this automotive industry going, especially looking at the events of 2015. I've put together what I call my blue ribbon panel, some of the best thinkers in the business. Included, but not here today, is Carl Ludvigsen, based in London. Got an encyclopedia in his mind of what this industry is all about. Also, Neil DeCoker, the founder of the Original Equipment Supplier Association, not here with us today, but I've got three others of the panel joining us, including Marianne Keller, made her fame and fortune on Wall Street. Marianne, great having you here for the show today. Nice to be here. Also, Dr. David Cole, the, the founder of the Center for Automotive Research and does a whole bunch of other things, still has his hands in the pie, so to speak. David, yeah, it's great having well. you Thanks here. Thanks very much, John. And Edward Lapham, a former uh, managing editor and editor of Automotive News, the, the Bible of the industry, as it were, and it's great having you here, too. Good Ed. to be here, John. Okay, we've all talked about how this industry is under stress, and we've looked at some of the things going on this year that are going to affect it. But Marianne, just to set the stage for the audience here, as you look out on this industry, so capital intensive and the like, how would you describe it to people on the outside? This is an industry that's facing really, as you said, unprecedented challenges. I think uh, when Sergio Marchionne came up with his uh, classic PowerPoints uh, in the spring, I think uh, talking about the capital junkie, he's right. This is an industry that is facing an enormous amount of investment, whether it's for fuel economy or just to stay competitive uh, or emissions. There are so many technological challenges that this industry is facing and competitive challenges that where that money is going to come from is clearly weighing heavily today on the stocks of the auto companies. I, you know, going back to my 30-year career on Wall Street, the stock price often is the barometer for how investors are truly feeling. And General Motors stock price is not a whole lot higher than it was when they did an IPO a few years ago, in spite of the fact that car sales are at near record levels. Uh, production is very high, productivity is high. Uh, we have margins declining in this industry. Uh, it's clearly not an industry that is generating sufficient capital uh, for reinvestment. So it, if it's going to achieve all of the goals that are being set for it by the market and by regulators. Um, so I think that uh, when I look at this industry, I see an industry that right now is, is, is enjoying a cyclical boom in demand, which may last a few more years. But at the same time, competition and, uh, and perhaps pressure on just on their overall cost structures is, beginning, is, is weighing on the valuations of these stocks. When you have a company like Tesla that's worth about a third of what a company like General Motors is, then there's something clearly out of whack. David, you've talked about this before. This is an industry under stress, as Mary Ann said. It needs a lot of capital, but it does not provide the kinds of returns that other industries can provide. Are the money people at some point going to say, hey, forget it, I'm going to go put my money where it can really make a return? Well, it's a good question. I mean, one of the concerns that I have, for example, if we look at tech and software, and I've been on a couple of software boards, uh, people love them. You know, not much investment. Things happen quickly. You can replicate them. But the question is, Will that run out of gas at some point? We don't know. I mean, technology, for example, is a big deal. Technology is totally embedded in the auto industry at an amazing level today compared to what it was a few years back. But I think one of the bottom line issues that the industry faces is that just about everybody is pretty good. 
and you look at the products, uh, you look at uh, how they perform, the range of products that people have, cars, trucks, mini cars, maxi cars, electrics, plug-ins. This industry is doing a remarkable job, but there's probably too many in the game yet to really be profitable over the longer term. So when we think about it sort of at a systems approach, um, don't think this industry is static. This industry is in for a period of change that perhaps we haven't seen before, whether it's in technology, autonomous vehicles, materials, uh, uh, Uber, uh, car sharing in urban areas, the software, cybersecurity. I mean, this is really a crazy, wild industry that is not at the point where it needs to be to be the kind of profitable business that Marianne and colleagues would really want to be a part of. And I would add that one of the distinguishing um, attributes that I've seen this year in terms of competitive advantage, because this industry has been searching for, for competitive advantage you know, for, for decades. The Japanese used to have it in quality. Well, that's no longer competitive advantage. I think that there was a very interesting occurrence this year that almost happened simultaneously when you had an activist investor trying to bleed cash out of General Motors for a big share buyback and an increase in the dividend, which they accommodated to some extent. At the same time, Toyota announced a new form of share, their AA shares, which the investor, only a Japanese could purchase it, was going to get a very low return, the promise that they could that their stock would be redeemed at the purchase price, having nothing to do with the future price. So Toyota is, is finding ways of attracting capital at, very low, uh, at a very low cost of capital. And in the meantime, you know, investors here in the United States tend to look at the balance sheets of a cyclical capital-intensive company and say, I want more than my share. And that is, I think, a factor that managements have to deal with. Miriam, why do you think that Toyota is able to raise that money? And they raised, I think, something like $5 billion. And they will, by the way, do this over five years. And, and it's personally, I think that money is going to fuel cell research and development. Artificial they, intelligence oh, also. That too, yeah. yeah. So they needed this long-term thing. But why can, as you point out, I mean, the, this Model AA share doesn't really give you much return. How come they are able to raise the cash that they need or the capital that they need? Because it's Toyota? Well, it's Toyota. Toyota is a very big, very, very well-run company. They had their uh, stumble a few years ago with the acceleration issue and the floor mats. Uh, But I think they've learned a lot from it. I think that they are able to take a long-term view, which a lot of companies do not have the luxury of, of, of being able to do that. And I think they're reflecting exactly what we're talking about. This is an industry where if you're going to stay competitive, you need a lot of liquidity in your balance sheet. You've got to be able to invest. And you're investing in areas where the auto industry never tread before. They never needed artificial intelligence capability. Ed, what do you think? I mean, you, you've been observing the scene, the automotive scene, for a long time. Well, some of the factors that we're talking about are new. You know, the whole Uber phenomenon, the whole mobility, selling mobility rather than the, than the hardware that takes you someplace. But there are other factors, things that we're seeing that are, that are also intruding into the industry, and they want buy-in and they want to share. For example, safety. If you look at what happened with Takata, what happened with Chrysler, and go, even going back to Toyota, this, this, the safety agencies want better results. And one of the ways they're looking at it is, of course, autonomous vehicles, which we believe will reduce the number of crashes and, and 
fatalities. You also have the emissions factor right now. The whole Volkswagen situation, you know, I, the, the governments around the world are, want some um, proof that automakers are going to be meeting the standards involved. And this could have the effect of leading to a global fuel economy or emission standard, which would make things easier for the automakers in one regard, but tougher in another. Dave, do you see that happening? I, ever since I got into this industry, they've been dreaming of globalized That's standards. That's right, of standards. Uh, I, I think we're probably closer to it now than we have been for a long time. And the reason is that the national industry, I don't care, the Korean, Japanese, Chinese, American, European, are really under a lot of pressure. And I think if you have cost that isn't necessary, I think we're going to be able to eliminate some of this cost just related to the fact that our standards are so much of a problem in terms of trying to meet all those standards. I do think one of the more interesting things here, and we have seen it rather dramatically, is that nobody likes a cheater. And this has really introduced a new factor in the industry with the VW situation, which is way beyond anything that we have seen. Uh, and it also suggests there are factors that could be subtle that could have a profound impact on shaping the future of this industry. Now, this is going to continue to play out for some time. We don't know what those factors are likely to be. It could be a technology advance. But, for example, if we found that uh, a vehicle was vulnerable to cyber attack, uh, one particular vehicle and the others weren't, wow, that would be a really big deal. And it's this sort of milieu of chaos that's in front of us right now that makes us such as interesting, as I was mentioned earlier, visiting Rome a few years ago and on the floor of the Colosseum, and you think of uh, gladiators trying to kill one another. All of us get a chance to sit in the stands and watch this going on. And it's, uh, at one level, it's very entertaining. At another level, it's extremely serious. We all know people well throughout this industry. And they're the gladiators on the floor of the Colosseum. And right now, there's more going on than I think I've seen in my history of following this industry. And the other thing that's a part of this is the rate of change is unbelievable. And the interaction between all parts of this systems puzzle is amazing. This uh, Volkswagen cheating scandal seemingly would be a game changer. Marianne, do you think that it is really going to change the way that the industry is viewed? I think it's going to change the way Volkswagen is viewed because so far, while there have been issues with, you know, whether your fuel economy is stated correctly on, on the window sticker, um, we've never had something that, that goes to the level of a fraud where a company deliberately did something to, to violate a law. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a whole nother level of mismanagement. So do any of you believe that this was just a handful of rogue engineers? Not a chance. You know, it's a funny thing. I mean, if you look at the German companies in particular, they tend to have really technical competence at the highest levels of the company. But you can see how things change as they move across layers. Somebody at the top says, well, gee, I didn't drive as well as I would like to have it drive. And then as it moves down to the guy that has to do something about it, this is the most important thing in the world. And here you're looking at the combustion in a diesel engine chamber, you're looking at fuel economy and power, and you look at the necessity to lower some of those peak temperatures to control nitrogen oxide emissions. We can't do that. That is an impossible thing unless I play a trick, and that's what happened. Yeah. But when you look at what you have here as a company that was run by engineers, 
and you have a company that was singularly, supposedly, able to meet the diesel emission standards where no other auto company, and they all investigated oh, it, was able to do with it. Now, wouldn't you have thought that somebody at Volkswagen at the top would have said, now, why were we able to do it? What is our secret sauce? Have we patented it? Have we locked it up so that we have it in perpetuity? Well, part of the problem is that when you look at an auto company from the top level senior management, the complexity is just unbelievable. And we kind of have the feeling as an outsider looking in, well, you should have seen that little detail. And while this is not a detail the way it's been exposed, when you look at all of the other stuff that is going on, it's kind of a detail and it can slip through the cracks. I, I don't think a senior guy would do something like that, but you could see somebody lower because he thought the senior guy told me to do that. I don't know. I still have the feeling myself. Uh, I'm with Marianne on this. Uh, maybe the senior guy, uh, poking into it a bit, said, oh, okay, don't will, tell me anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to know. I know nothing kind of thing. I, how, how do you see that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, I, you know, my concern is not only the damage that's been done to the corporation, but to each of the individual brands, their stakeholders around the world, employees, dealers, dealership employees, owners, everybody that has believed in Volkswagen and its brands and its engineering integrity is, is in for a big hurt. And that's what's happening. And that's, that will affect Well, the most the interesting thing to me about it was the first day we heard it. And we've seen people make mistakes, all kinds of things, a little bump in the stock. We saw that precipitous drop in the equity value. And that said, right off the... Mm -hmm. Once again, the stock price is the barometer. Is yeah. big the money deal. people knew right off the, the bat that this was a big, big, big problem. Yeah. You know, I, I make a, a side comment on this. Here was Volkswagen in rapid pursuit of being number one in the world. Oh, For I what? I mean, what does being number one mean? Unless you're the most profitable, it's meaningless. Toyota got itself into trouble and went astray when it was in a blind pursuit of being number one. And General Motors. And General Motors, That's yes. Right. I have a slide that I've used. Uh, Never want to be number one. Nice. <laughs> Market share is nice. Profits are essential. Be it is. what you ask for. You know, it, right. I, I like when companies say our focus is on the customer. And I, I still believe you focus on the customer. And if you do things right, everything else will fall into place. If you focus on being number one, you go astray because your focus is not on the person who's going to walk in the store and buy your product. That's right. Well, you look at the, you know, the range of factors. I mean, one of the biggest factors right today in the industry with both manufacturers and suppliers, and it's not unique here, is talent. You look at some of the countries like Japan, 1.3 uh, birth rate, uh, limited immigration, aging population, much more serious problem than we have here. You look at the financial markets, the excessive competition, the cybersecurity issues, the technology trends that are occurring in so many different places. I mean, the mix here of stuff in this big basket is unbelievable. I mean, we really have never seen anything quite like it before. And then you throw this uh, G-Pack on top of it, this whole cybersecurity thing that we were just talking about yeah. a minute ago. Ed, I mean, this is a game changer, right? Th this was the, the G-Pack that went around the world. Everybody has aware Everybody of saw it. It wasn't new, but it was refocused and repackaged by a couple of guys who wanted this on their resume. Mm -hmm. And it did affect everybody because it, it made everybody understand just how vulnerable automobiles have become to that sort of thing. And why is that? It's because all of the things that have been done to give, number one, the consumers what they want in entertainment, in, in connectivity, and all the things inside the automobile, but also the things that automakers have done to try and improve the safety. For example, on the brakes, you know, it provided another 
entrance into that vehicle for bad guys to try and attack it. But yes, you're absolutely right. It is a problem across the across the industry. It's not just auto. Uh, it's part of our lives. The whole issue of cyber, secur- cyber security today is, is everywhere, and the impact is who knows what it's going to be like. I mean, whether we're talking about terrorism and not being able to find out things or uh, our personal data, uh, cars, uh, washing machine, our cell phone, smartphone. Anything in the cloud is vulnerable. It's all vulnerable. You know, I, I did hear uh, one great line. We, we did a show uh, earlier uh, in the year on cybersecurity, and one of the panelists made a great point that one of the, the silver linings that came out of the Jeep hack was that now everybody knows what the cost of a recall for cybersecurity could be. Chrysler had to pay out over $100 million in recalls to fix this thing. So the good news is now even in the finance departments, they know, okay, we can now budget at least $100 million to prevent this sort of thing from happening. But I thought that was kind of an interesting wrinkle on one of the good things that came out of the GPAC. Okay. So we've, we've defined the world, we've defined all that. If, if you are the chief executive officer or a board member at an automaker or supplier, what do you tackle first? The whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, one of the most important aspects of this business is really in product development. Is how robust are our designs? How robust is our product development process? Because if our product development process is really strong, it has to integrate all of these factors, and it really drives the cost downstream in the product, the manufacturing costs and everything else. And when we look at this industry today with, uh, for example, 40 or 50 years ago, about 10% of the IP came out of suppliers. It was build to print. Today, more than 50% and a growing percentage is coming out of suppliers and there are new suppliers. So this mix is very cha- is changing very rapidly. And are we changing our processes like product development to accommodate the amazing changes that are underway? And I'm not convinced that we are. I think as human beings, we kind of like to stay in a rut because we're comfortable with that. And in some respects, we're probably staying in the rut a little bit too long in terms of product development with all this stuff going on. But we're also seeing in among suppliers, for example, the mega mergers, ZFTRW. Right. Uh, so we're, and we're, we're seeing suppliers restructure. Johnson Controls getting rid of its seating business, for example, interiors business. Um, so we're seeing a lot of action by the, ja- of the Chinese making acquisitions. I think 2015 sure. will be a record number of acquisitions by Chinese parts companies of international parts companies. So we're, the supplier community is changing. And where auto companies do in the U.S. or elsewhere get their parts from, the name of the company is different. It's no longer necessarily the local, right. su- local producer. It may be a Chinese company building a factory in the United States to supply glass. So I think, and, and then suppliers are also looking for how do they protect their own margins with some proprietary technology. And the answer for everybody is sensors, microprocessors, <laughs> the same answer that the auto companies are looking to to create that competitive you know, aura around their car. So you have a company like AutoLeave which is, you know, makes airbags, which are now a something of a commodity product, but also moving into electronics. But uh, the, we can make the products better. 
We can, if we have enough capital, we can put the money in to spend it, make the products that we believe today's consumers want. But we're looking at, on the marketing side, a whole different shift in the population. And the millennials, for example, right. don't seem to love their automobiles as much as, well, as much as you and I did. Well, you know, and this is, I think, where we get into this whole discussion of here comes Silicon Valley. We've got Uber, Google, and Apple all focused laser-like on this automotive industry. I think, based on our discussions earlier, we don't expect them to become another OEM making X number of units a year. We see... Or selling them through dealers. Or selling them no. through dealers. In fact, maybe people don't buy or lease cars in the future. Marianne, you take it from here. Mobility services is something that well, we've really identified as a game changer. I think so. And I think, you know, the question is personal transportation through owner direct ownership of the vehicle or personal transportation provided by a service. And I think increasingly we're seeing something very simple like ride-sharing, a zip car, uh, becoming more and more ex uh, acceptable and accessible uh, in urban areas. And I'm not just talking about New York City. I'm talking about smaller suburban towns, uh, communities around uh, universities, Ann Arbor. Uh, mm -hmm. which yeah. they're, where they're very popular. And so you're, you're feeding a generation of young people um, living in apartment houses and, you know, not just not what we did. We, we had a car as soon as we had a license, but we have a different generational expectation now where you go out and you get the zip car and you, you, know, you take it wherever you need to take it and then you bring it back. Um, their notion of, of a car is going to be is very different than ours. And I think uh, Apple, Google, and Uber probably are thinking more about mobility service as opposed to I'm going to sell an Apple branded car like they sold me my computer. Uh, I don't think that that's what they're up to. I think they're interested in selling you the mobility plus the services that they can attach to the car itself. Well, instability is a way of life. Change is going to continue to occur very rapidly. Everybody's going to try to get the high ground in terms of technology which says I have something unique that you all want. And the fact is that you can have that, but only for a short while. And you can't get wedded to your past. You have to be thinking always ahead of the game, way ahead of the game, if you're going to be successful in this business. And again, it just says that this is going to be a lot of fun to watch because this is a game that is a very high stakes game. Uh, obviously, for a state like Michigan, manufacturing states, it's a really big deal. And for many countries around, it's a really big deal. And we have to be prepared for the unexpected on a continuing basis. That's, that's the way of life. So, Ed, you had asked a question earlier. If we were CEOs, what would we do? What would you do? Well, I think, when we, if we're looking at game changers for this year, I think Toyota's AA was, was the one that, that it's going to give them the mother's milk that they need to develop products and to do all the sorts of things that drive from that. And that's... Uh, again, you have to provide the product that the customer wants. The company that does that will be profitable. We'll, we'll see its share grow. We'll do all the things that it's supposed to do as a, as a company. And I think that was a very, very important step. Okay, Model AA was the, the big game changer as Ed sees it. Dave, what do you think was the big game changer for 2015? I, it's just the complexity of the mix of factors that are coming into play now. Uh, and it's hard for me to pick out one or another and say this is the big deal. It's just the confluence of all of these factors and how fast they're moving, how they're shaping uh, the industry. 
And it really tells me, if you look at Clay Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, where he does the case study of uh, disk drives, and the next generation of disk drive was never done by the guy that owned the prior generation, is that's the kind of world that we're in. And if you're an auto manufacturer, an auto supplier, you've got to be absolutely at the front edge, but you've got to be constantly trying to reinvent yourself because the status quo doesn't work. Marianne, what do you think was the big game changer? You know, a couple of years ago, Bill Ford at, a co at the Milken Conference had a wonderful conversation where he talked about the fact that we cannot remain on the same track that we've been on where, you know, the population grows and the growth rate of uh, the vehicle population keeps up with it because urban areas have become already, uh, as he said, global gridlock or... So given that, Ford is moving toward at least experimentation in mobility and is beginning to define itself a little differently, even though it makes all of its money off of pickup trucks. But I applaud that. The other uh, corollary to that would be Google, Apple, and Uber. And the fact that often the game changer in, a, in, a, in an industry that's been around for 100 plus years is outside of that group of companies that, you know, are not going to make the next generation disk drive. I think Ford's trying to. I think they're, they're challenging themselves, but they're still locked in the old model. So they're going to have to spend to stay competitive to generate the money to actually become something bigger. Uh, whereas the guys in Silicon Valley have more money than anybody could imagine, amazing balance sheets, and all the engineers that they could possibly want to hire at their, at their disposal. Yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, for me personally, the, the biggest game changer is this emergence of mobility services. It's been, it's been building, but to your point, Marianne, Ford is now calling itself not the Ford Motor Company, at least internally, they're calling themselves the Ford Mobility Company. And now General Motors is even going to, is starting to talk uh, along those lines. But I'll add this. Carl Ludvigson, who's part of the panel, also said, don't write this industry off yet. You know, don't say that it's a crisis yet. It's, it's been written off in the past only to come roaring back again. It's proven itself to be remarkably resilient. So, yes, under stress, going to get even more stressful, tremendous upheaval going on. But as Dave said, it's going to be fascinating to watch this. And with that, we're going to have to wrap this up. But Mary Ann Keller, Dr. David Cole, Edward Lapham, shout out to Carl Ludvigsen and Neil DeCoker, too. I want to thank all of them for having put together this fascinating discussion on Game Changers.